So today we're going to look at a little something called justice. We're going to look at how the resurrection promises the hope of justice. And uh, if you're wondering about that, we're going to look at first at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45 through 49. If they can put that up on the screen. Um, this is Paul writing to the church in uh, Corinth, and he says, and the whole chapter 15 actually is all about resurrection, so I'd encourage you to read it. But here toward the end, he says, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. That's what's written in the book of Genesis, that Adam became a living being. The last Adam, which is Jesus, he's the second Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Can you, can, you, can you all say that with me? A life-giving spirit. Let's try that one more time. It is spring break, so I know you're used to kicking your feet back and just chilling. All right, let's just say it all together. A Come on, somebody. Nice. All right. So the first Adam became a living being. He received life. He took life. The second Adam became a life-giving being. He gives life. That's the difference. And uh, at City Chapel, we want to be a life-giving church. We don't just want to be here for us and to receive and to take. We want to be here for others and to give. And so if you stick around very long, we're going to ask you to give some life. Uh, Life-giving being, that's what Jesus is. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. In other words, there, there was the first Adam who was, who was born according to the flesh. The first man was of the earth, verse 47 says. He was made of dust. The second man is the Lord, and he is from heaven. This is Jesus. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. It's talking about the resurrection. Let's look at a passage in the Gospel, the Gospel of John. We just got done studying some of the writings of John. When we turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 11, we see an interesting story. And, I, and actually, we're going to jump sort of into the middle of a story. And to, and to give you some background, um, Jesus had some, some really close friends as he walked this earth, as he lived on the earth. He made some really close friends. And uh, one particular family uh, was a man by the name of Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And uh, there are actually a few different stories about these folks because they were really close to Jesus and involved in a lot of what Jesus did. Um, and there came a time when Lazarus became very sick. And so uh, Jesus was far away on, on, on his um, Jesus is crusade, uh, just wrote his book, Jesus is. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, he's, he's out there and he's, he's preaching the gospel and he's doing his thing. And the, 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 the friends of Lazarus send a message to Jesus, the, the sisters especially, and they, they ask him to come, to come to Lazarus' house because they say, the one whom you love, they didn't even bother, the one whom you love is sick. And so they believe that this is going to bring Jesus to the house. And of course, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, uh, Lazarus is sick. Uh, but we are going to hang out here for a couple more days. And so he stays for a couple of more days. And then he comes, when he, by the time he actually comes to the tomb, he, by the time he actually comes to the place of Lazarus' house, they, they realize, the disciples realize that Lazarus has died. And um, this is where we jump into this story. When Martha confronts Jesus um, as Jesus is coming to their house, Martha comes out of the house. As soon as she heard, verse 20 of John 11, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him. But Mary was still sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus. Now Martha is, is an interesting character. She's, she's kind of a doer. 
So she's a person, she's a very practical person. Um, she's probably the one who wrote the letter to Jesus. <laughs> uh, Mary is more, her sister is more of a kind of not that interested in the details kind of person. She's the person who sat at Jesus' feet and listened to his teaching. So she's, 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 she's often characterized as a little bit more emotional, a little bit more uh, uh, even spiritually minded at times. Martha's more of the practical, let's get this done kind of person. And so Martha leaves the house. Mary's still sitting there crying. Martha leaves the house and she runs to Jesus. She says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. <laughs> no hello, no how are you? <laughs> how's the Jesus's book? How's that? How's, how's that coming for you? Have you signed the, the record deal yet? No, none of that. Just, just, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Verse 23 says, Jesus responds to her and says, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. Then when Mary came, uh, in verse 32, then when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him the exact same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her all weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. He said to them, where have you laid him? So they said to him, Lord, come and see. In verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. If you, if you need to memorize scripture for school, that's the best one to memorize. John 11:35. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him! Exclamation point. Verse 37, and some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Very similar to what Mary and Martha had said. Verse 38, Jesus, again groaning himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was laid against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time uh, there's a stench, and he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I have said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with his grave clothes, and his face was still wrapped with the cloth. Jesus said to, to, the, to the Jews, loose him and let him go. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it teaches us um, so many things, not only about the history of the Christian church, the reason for our hope, but it also teaches us about where we are today. Lord, may we see where we are today. May, may we see how this applies to us today. May we catch a glimpse of the glory and the majesty of the resurrected Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. There's something about Easter and bunnies um, I don't know. I don't know what that connection is. I think it's rooted in paganism somewhere. But for some reason, there are bunnies around Easter time who carry eggs. It's one of the weirdest things ever. Um, it's one of the few mascots, really, of, of, uh, of holidays that just totally doesn't make sense. You know, I mean, Father, you know, you know Christmas 
time you have a jolly old Saint Nick who delivers presents. That sort of makes sense because there are presents um, you know, under the tree. And there, are, there was a guy named Saint Nick who apparently was quite generous. And there's some things that sort of make sense. And Jesus gave his gift of his son. But the whole, the whole you know, bunny and egg thing is just, is just bizarre to me. Um, but I remember one year, and I think it was around Easter time, um, I was about seven years old. My parents decided to get my brother and I a bunny. Um, <laughs> I haven't had many, many pets in my time, um, mainly because I don't love animals. So you can all leave the church now and go find another church of a pastor who loves animals and likes to hold children. Um, I'm not that guy. I'm not the guy. I'm not, like, I don't, I don't enjoy... Like, like, like other people's kids, they get slobber on their hands, right? And then they reach out and slobber gets on your face. And it's tough enough with my kids' slobber. I don't want your kids' slobber. I don't know where that slobber is. Anyway, um, so I'm not big into animals. I, you know, animals are cute and definitely baby bunnies. I mean, I think everybody, probably even Hitler enjoyed baby bunnies. You know, he just, I mean, they're just so cute and cuddly and everything. And so I remember my, my, my parents, I think I was seven years old. My brother was like four. Um, we, had, we had got a bunny and my grandpa built this cage for him. And it was solid wood and uh, there was like a mesh floor to it so that, you know, the little poopies could drop down and then you could clean it up and it was on like these cylinder blocks. I mean, it was a mass, it was a beastly cage and um, uh, he was going to be an outdoor bunny and uh, so, you know, we got this little bunny and, and my brother and I had to try to name him. We only had one bunny and so, uh, I, as I recall, my brother got to name him first and um, he decided that his name would be Superman because around that time Christopher Reeves was blowing it up, you know what I'm saying? All the 80s people just kind of helped me out a little bit. And Emilio, I, you don't know nothing about that, so just, just never mind. Just never mind. There have been about 30 remakes since, and none of them have been as good as Christopher Reeves. And so, you know, we, we both love Superman. So, so we had a bunny named Superman, and he was really misnamed because he died within the week. Like, I don't know what happened to Superman. I don't know if the cage was made of kryptonite or how this whole thing played out. But we came out one morning. We were feeding him, watering him. We came out one morning and he's dead, you know, stiff as a board. I mean, he's, he's dead, little bunny. And uh, my brother and I were kind of shaken up because, I mean, they're supposed to live a little bit longer than that. You know, I mean, it's not like a goldfish. It's a bunny, for crying out loud. And, and so I don't know what happened, but somehow he died pretty, pretty quickly. And then, I, I, once again, my memory is not real clear, which is rare for me. Normally, my memory is really good. But somehow, we got another bunny. I think my grandpa went out and bought one, or, or maybe my mom and dad did. But somehow, we got another bunny that was also white and fluffy, and, and, and he looked just like the other bunny. So I got to name that one, which I named him Lazarus. Because <laughs> at seven years old, I was a biblical scholar. And... Um, I was like, look, he's back from the dead, you know? It's like, Lazarus. And so whenever I read the story of Lazarus, I think of my bunny. Um, poor old that. But Lazarus, man, like Lazarus lived forever. I mean, like, like almost, I, he's probably still around somewhere. I, I don't know what, what we fed him or how that worked, but he just lived forever. And, and it's tough to be an outdoor bunny in, in Michigan. I'm from Michigan. Um, it gets to like negative zero degrees during the winters. And somehow Lazarus, like he was up, he was in his, his, his cage, the, the boards and the walls and stuff, and like a whole bunch of hay. 
and he just survived like forever, like literally like 11 years. He lived like 11 years with us. Like he was, he was, he was, he was so big. He was like Texas size, you know, by the time he finally, he finally ended his life. I mean, we, 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 we fed him, you know, most days. And um, uh, the difficulty with, 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 <laughs> with Michigan is that, is that like the water freezes really quick. When it's like negative five degrees outside, like we come out in the morning, his water bowl would just be solid ice. And so you bash it out and all this kind of thing. You take care of Lazarus, but Lazarus just lived forever. And so when I think of this Lazarus story, that's, that's kind of what I, what I think about. It has nothing to do with what I'm preaching about. It's just kind of, you ought to know that if you get a second bunny, you should name him Lazarus because he will live forever. Um, but this story is really, this is a resurrection story that most people think about when they think about resurrection. The story of Lazarus is a very, very, very popular, very famous story. And actually, it was popular in the early church as well because this, this, this incident um, in John chapter 11 is what um, John attributes to really sparking the Pharisees and the Sadducees deciding that we really have to eliminate this guy, Jesus. They were mad at him before, right? They didn't like him before, but when he raised Lazarus from the dead. It is this event that, does, that made them decide, you know what, we are going to have to eliminate this guy. He's, he's too dangerous. There's something about the resurrection that is just too uh, mind-blowing. It's too, it's, too, it's too great. We can't deal with that. We have to eliminate him. Um, but this story starts off, I think, like, 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 like most stories. It starts off in, uh, with most resurrection stories. It starts off with a, with a funeral. There is this time of mourning. And, 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 and the Jews would have been mourning for seven days. They were, it was mandated that they were to mourn once a loved one died. The whole, in, the whole household was to mourn for seven days. You weren't allowed to be happy. You weren't allowed, you, you, you literally weren't allowed to read even all of the Bible. You were only allowed to read like the depressing scriptures. Like the book of Lamentations, that was allowed. Um, <laughs> yay! Uh, you were allowed to read some portions of Jeremiah. He was known as the weeping prophet. Um, during this, this seven days, there was this, they, they, and to some extent, I think that's kind of healthy. Because our culture, we kind of rush people. It's like, it's like it, the, their, their loved one is barely even, it's like it's ba funeral's barely over. And, and already we expect people to start kind of getting back into the, the groove of things and smiling and laughing. Because uh, we don't like grief. We have a thing against grief. But they actually gave people space to grieve, which I think is good. I think it's good just to let it out. And they were, they were required to let it out. And vi visitors could come and to visit with you, but they, they, they couldn't talk about the good times. They had to cry with you. And so at this stage in history, they would actually hire professional mourners uh, to come out and so that there would be an atmosphere of sorrow, so that there would be a true atmosphere of loss. And I, I think to some extent that's, that is helpful, but this is the scenario that Jesus is walking into, right? He got the letter when there was some hope, when there was some belief that, man, if Jesus can come, then our brother will be, will be healed. Uh, modern medicine can't deal with it. The doctors can't deal with it. But we believe that Jesus can deal with it. And, and so there's some hope. And so they send a letter to Jesus and Jesus doesn't respond quickly enough. Has anybody ever been there when God doesn't respond quickly enough? Um, and, and, and they don't even know that it's intentional. Right? I mean, maybe like his GPS made a wrong turn. He kept going left for, for four days, you know. It's like, uh, but there's something that, that he's late and they both, Mary, Martha, and all of the Jews who are gathered around him, all came to the same conclusion. Man, wow, if Jesus would have been here when he was living, then this wouldn't even be the case. We wouldn't be in this sorrow. We wouldn't be mourning the loss 
of our brother. And this is, this is, this is kind of the question, honestly, that is looming in the air. Nobody actually asks the question, but really the question that, that's hanging there is like, where were you? All right, Martha comes to Jesus and she, she's, she's right off the bat. She says, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. She doesn't ask it, but that's kind of the question. Where were you? Like, why weren't you here? Like, you, you, you love us. We love you. We are close. You've healed several other people. It's not, I mean, Amelia was just talking about a town where, like, everybody got healed. Uh, it's like where, where Jesus went, he was constantly bringing healing and restoration to people's bodies, to their minds, and to their spirits. You know, I mean, and, and this guy who means a lot to you, Lazarus, who you, who you love, how come, like, where were you? And I think to some extent, this is the same question that many ask of God today. Like, where is God uh, when ruthless dictators, you know, do what ruthless dictators do? Where is God uh, when, when, when hurricanes and natural disasters take innocent lives? Where, like, 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 hey, if God is real, if God is here, and if he's powerful, how come he's not intervening? How come he's not stopping these things from happening? Like, where were you? Like, you know, we believe that you could have done something. You know, and on the one hand, you got to love Martha's faith. She doesn't even question. She's like, man, if you would have been here, bam, cancer would have been gone. Healing would have happened. It would have been, it would have been a party. It would have been awesome. But where, like, where were you? And I, and I, I, f I feel like human suffering often produces that question. And it's a question that comes from sorrow, but it's ultimately longing for justice. It's ultimately longing for the bad guys to get put in jail and for the good guys to get a reward, for, for faithfulness to be honored and for unfaithfulness to be uh, punished. There's, there's, there's a strong sense inside of our own souls that we desire justice. And you can even see this in our, in our current political system. Like, like politicians don't even have to say anything that makes sense as long as they're after justice, you know? It's like, oh, okay, yeah, we're going to vote for that guy because he, he's going to bring justice. And this is, this is the, the dominant human tendency. We look for somebody somewhere to bring justice to our situation bring justice to our lives, bring justice to our city and to our country and to our world, somebody to stop ISIS, somebody to stop, you know, all, all, all this injustice that's going on. Somebody's got to come in and save us from this. You have that inside of you for a reason. That's not, it didn't just appear there. You have that because that's the way that God created you. God created you for justice. And yet we live in a world that is unjust. We live in a world where the bad guys often succeed and prosper. And the good guys often get stepped on and killed and murdered and silenced. We live in an unjust world, but we're created for justice. And when, and when we don't see God bringing justice, we often call out to, where are you anyway? How come you're not doing something about this and, and innocent children being destroyed and, and, and murders and rapists and, and, and child trafficking? Like, like where's God? We often have these questions, we don't like to talk about them in church, but they're still real and they're still just underneath the surface of our anger. <laughs> they're underneath the surface of our anxiety. They're underneath the surface. Where is God anyway? Because we know he can do stuff. He, 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 he intervenes. I mean, we, we've seen him heal here at City Chapel. He's healed folks from cancer. He's healed, he's healed folks from a common cold. I mean, we know God does this. We know God intervenes. I mean, in human history, he has, he has stopped the mouths of lions. He has stopped guns from firing. He has stopped missiles from launching. He has done some amazing things sometimes, but not all the time. And, and it leaves us kind of like Martha saying, where were you anyway? 
She had strong faith, obviously, to believe that Jesus was the answer. And if Jesus could have been there, Jesus would have healed. No question in her mind. He wanted to heal. He's able to heal. He's going to heal. She believed it. The problem with her faith was not the lack of strength. It was, it was the limitations that she had put on her faith. That as long as he's living, Jesus is able to do something. But now that he's dead, her only hope is something that she calls the resurrection. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus challenges her, her limit of faith. She says, look, if you would have been here, you wouldn't have died. And Jesus says, guess what? He's going to be raised from the dead. And, and her faith is so limited that when, even when he says that, she doesn't hear that. <laughs> she hears her theology. She hears her doctrine. Because the Pharisees taught that there would be a resurrection of the dead. Now, the Sadducees believed there would not be a resurrection of the dead, but the Pharisees, which, which were the dominant uh, uh, teachers of the law, and even nowadays, most, Judaism, most of Judaism believes in a resurrection of the dead. And the way, the way their theology went is that the Messiah would come, and when the Messiah would come, he would come at the very end of the age. I mean, right at the end. And he would come, and he would come, and he would set all things right, and he would set up his kingdom on the earth, and he would resurrect all of God's people. So all of the Jews, he would resurrect all of the Jews, and then the Jews would take over the world. That was basically their theology. That's kind of an oversimplification, but that's basically the way it went. When the Messiah came, he would resurrect all of the Jews, and then the Jews would take over the world, and then the Jews would judge the living and the dead, and then he would resurrect those who were dead who were Gentiles, and they would be judged. So she says, look, I know that there is a resurrection and I know it's way out there. It's at, the end, it's at the end of time. It's at the end of the age. And I know that, yes, I will see him again at that point. And so Jesus once again redirects her faith. First, he stretches it, which, by the way, is often what happens in human suffering. I don't want to have a church that we, that, that we are against all suffering. Because if you believe that all suffering is evil, then you're going to have a hard time living on this planet. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, <laughs> stuff's not going to make sense. If you think all suffering is a result of lack of faith or sin, then you're going to have a hard time, like, resolving life. Because it's not. Like, suffering is a part of this fallen world, but it is not a result necessarily of your sin, or you messed up, or you made a mistake, or it's something to do with you. Look, we, 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 we often want to calculate, it's like, well, what did I do to deserve this? Oh, no, it's just you're living in a fallen world sometimes. And the mud that gets thrown around sometimes lands on you, you know? And th this, is, this is what it is. And in fact, God uses suffering. Like even, like even physical pain. Okay, like physical pain, like uh, turns your little warning bells on in your in your brain, so you can you can live with the little ailment as long as it doesn't hurt too much, and you just kind of find a way around it. But as soon as it starts hurting a lot, it gets your attention. This is what pain does in our lives. It wakes us up to reality. It, there's, there's there's not there's not much that's more clarifying than pain. <laughs> there's, there's not a whole lot that's more, that's more revealing about what's really important in life than pain. 
this is why pain is not always a bad thing. Suffering is not always a bad thing. It's not like we're always trying to escape suffering. Sometimes God intentionally delays. Like Jesus waited, right? It's like he gets a letter from Lazarus. I'm dying. And uh, he's like, ah, he's good. I mean, it's not easy. Look, when you're dying, that's not a good feeling. I don't think. I've never been there, but I don't think it's a nice, you know, feeling. Hey, he's good. And then, like, he gets another letter. I'm dead. Still good. <laughs> you know, the next day. I'm deader. Hey, he's good. I'm starting to stink. It's good. I mean, Jesus intentionally induces this suffering. He does nothing to stop it. He does nothing to intervene. Why? Why? He tells his disciples, actually, in the part that I didn't read, he tells his disciples, I'm, 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 I'm waiting in order that you might believe. <laughs> so the purpose of suffering is to increase faith. It's not because of a lack of faith. You don't cause suffering because you don't have faith. Suffering comes to you and God allows that suffering in order to increase, to teach you something about Him. Now, of course, some suffering I, I, is hard to explain, actually. Some, I don't think that's a blanket statement that you can wrap your arms around everybody at every funeral and say, oh, God's trying to teach you something about Himself right here. That, don't do that. That's insensitive and not cool. <laughs> Uh, in fact, I first, I first taught, I've always been kind of scared to teach on this passage of Lazarus because it's so mysterious to me um, and really, really strange, actually. Uh, the first time I ever um, preached on it was um, at a graveside. I was asked to do, to do a graveside funeral um, for a baby that was seven hours old. Uh, the Gallardo family back in Promised Land, San Marcos, uh, this is a few years back, they asked me to, 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 give, a, to give a word at the, when they're about to lower this like shoebox size casket into the ground. And I'm like, what, what am I going to say to that? Like, what, like, there's no, oh, God's trying to teach you all a lesson. I mean, th you know, you got to be careful because that doesn't really make sense. There's no justice in that. It's clearly no justice. It's clearly not right. It's clearly unjust. The, the seven-year-hour-old baby didn't do anything to deserve that. There's no, there's nothing you can say that would make this make sense. And that's where we get to verse 35. Jesus wept. So we have a God who doesn't worship logic and reason as much as you and I do. I think ever since the Enlightenment, we've really, as a, as a society, we've decided if we can just figure it out, it won't hurt as much. If we can just, you know, get the answer, if we can just connect the dots, if we can just stack this on top of that and figure out why this and how that and where, and if we, can if, we, if we can reason it in our head, then it won't hurt as much. And yet Jesus, who, he knows everything. He's a, he knows all the reasonings. He knows all the, I mean, he has all wisdom and all knowledge. He knows exactly why Lazarus is dead. He understands entirely everything that happened and the context in which it happened. And even the one who knows all the answers broke down and wept. He's facing a tomb and he, I mean, it doesn't say that, you know, tears welled up in his eyes. It says that he wept. I mean, the wheels came off, right? He crumpled down like a little boy and just sobbed. Because your knowledge will not take away your sorrow. 
your knowledge will not. You get the answers you, that you seek. You worship. Oh, we, we, we worship answers. And we just want answers. Just somebody give me answers. Pastor, give me answers. Why did this happen? Why did that happen? Why? Look, I, even if I could tell you why, it would not take away your sorrow. Sorrow is real. And God is a God who doesn't just dole out answers as if our sorrow could be solved by a simple sentence. As if I could say something to the Gairo family with little Liv, they named her seven hours old. As if I could say something to that family that would somehow like make it all, oh, now it makes sense, Pastor Harry. There's nothing you can say that makes sense. That's why verse 35 is the shortest verse in the Bible because that's all that needed to be said. Is that Jesus felt their pain. And actually, the next verse, if we can put that up on the screen, it says that he wept in verse 35. Verse 36, I think, is just as important. Then the Jews said, look how he loved. <laughs> we think God doesn't love because he doesn't stop things from happening. But God shows his love when he comes down next to us in the midst of what is happening. There is some love that you'll never know apart from tears. There is some love of God that you'll never know until you see him weeping with you. <laughs> he's, 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 he's loving them. He's loving them in his tears. And we don't like to talk about a God who breaks down in Christ because that doesn't seem very powerful and strong. And well, shouldn't he just speak to this and speak to that and like fix all of that? And boom, boom, boom. No, like this is, this is our God. He does speak to stuff. He does heal stuff. He does do miracles. But at the same time, he doesn't invalidate our pain and he doesn't brush over it like, oh, that's no big deal. You guys just don't have any faith. That's not what God is saying. He recognizes the desire for justice. He understands that you and I were created for a just world where things make sense and where good guys prosper and bad guys get in jail. He knows that that's what we were created for. And as he is standing there, he is so overcome by the lack of justice that he weeps, that he cries, and he shows his love in that way. And so the question is really not why, why did God allow this to happen? But, but who? Who allowed this to happen? First of all, it's a God who loves. But secondly, Jesus reveals something about himself to Martha that he is reiterating again at the end. But here in the beginning, really, in verse 20, well, as soon as Martha hears, she goes out of the house. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I believe that whatever you ask, God will give you. And in verse tw uh, 25, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection. There's this event that she's looking forward to. And, 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 and I think it's, it's somewhat similar to us because if you attend many, many funerals, uh, you get the idea that the person who died has now graduated to like the ultimate place. They're in heaven. They're, they are in, uh, and there's even like cemeteries called eternal rest. There's a very much a sense of finality when it comes to funerals. And we, we, even in the Christian culture, we seem to place a great importance on the happily ever after, the hereafter, the sweet by and by. <laughs> we will meet on the beautiful shore in the sweet by. Anyway, we, we put a lot of emphasis on like dying and going to heaven and escaping this planet and escaping this earth. And I was, I was, I was, I was talking to Robbie about it. I'm kind of getting into next week's sermon. But a lot of that has to do with our eschatology. 
A lot of that has to do with the fact that we have a slightly confused eschatology. Eschatology is the study of last things. We have a slightly confused idea of what is going to happen at the end of time. Just like, just like this lady, just like the Jews, they were off about what was going to happen at the end of time. The Messiah was not going to come at the end of time. The Messiah was going to insert himself in the middle of time. He was going to insert himself in the middle of time. And he wasn't just going to resurrect just the Jews at the end of time. He was going to come into the middle of time and offer resurrection life to all who would believe in him in the midst of time. See, she's looking forward to an event. And Jesus said, I am that event. That event in the future, I am bringing that event into the present. I am bringing the power of that event into the present. I'm bringing the hope of that event into the present. If you're like, and, and we, we, we so often do this. We so often look to heaven and it's like, well, someday in heaven, it'll all work out. Jesus is that event. Jesus is saying, look, I am that event. I am the source of peace. Like, like that, that event that you look to, to bring you peace, to bring you joy, to bring you happiness, to, to bring you justice, to sort out all the wrongs that have been done in the world. Jesus said, that's me. It's not, in, it's not a place. It's a person. It's not a time. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. He said, when, you, when you're near me, when you accept me, when you believe in me, then you receive the joy that you're looking to. To, to find in answers, you find it in me. When, you're, when you believe and you receive me, you receive the peace that you're looking for in answers or in heaven or in the resurrection. You find that in me. I, that's me. I am Christmas morning. I am Easter Sunday. I am the resurrection and the life that's in a person. And so often we look to an event or, or, or a place somewhere far, far away. And Jesus says that event or that place has come down to you and is presenting itself to you. And so when, when, I, when I talked to the Gallardo family and they talked about their seven-hour-old um, baby that they had lost, they said, um, the dad said, uh, he said, he said, you know, um, Liv really um, helped me follow Jesus. Liv is the baby. And I said, well, how, how did that happen? And he said, well, because until we lost Liv, I didn't know how valuable Jesus was to me. It's like Jesus was just this thing they did on Sundays and they did some prayer time occasionally, read the Bible as a family and it was nice. But he's like, when we lost Liv, I realized that Jesus was much more valuable than that. I realized he was much more greater than that and he was, he was a rock for me. When I was about to lose my mind, he was a rock. He, I stood on him, I leaned on him, I, I hung on him, I clung to him. He brought me the peace that, 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 that I couldn't get any other way. He brought me the, the relief and the joy again that I couldn't get any other way. He walked me through sorrow and grief that I couldn't have walked through any other way. And this is the goal of injustice in this present time, is to, is to push us to lean on Jesus is to push us to look to Jesus. It's to, it's to elevate the value of Jesus in our minds because he is the resurrection. And by the way, the resurrection is very valuable. We often in our current teaching and even preaching and belief system, we often, for us, death is like, it's, it's, it's like the door into eternity and our souls go to heaven and it's great. And we often don't even think about what happens to our body. And we think, yeah, sometime at the end of times, Jesus is going to come back, our body's going to be resurrected, and something's going to happen, and then, and then we'll go on to be with him. But it's almost superfluous, because the way we talk about heaven now, currently, it's like, man, it's, like, it's just the same thing. Like, we don't even need our body. We're just going to be hanging out 
with Jesus in heaven. White fluffy clouds. Modern, modern interpretation of heaven is, is kind of boring, actually. It's, these, it's just these, these it's everybody sitting around, cherubs plucking harps. You know, everything's white. Everybody's wearing white. Everything is like white walls, white ceilings, except Morgan Freeman, like everything's white there. You know, I just, no, just kidding. You know, it's, it's like the movie, what's his name? Jim Carrey and Morgan Freeman. It's like everything's like, it's so boring. And this is what, and this is what, this is what this is one, one, one modern agnostic said. He said, he said, heaven seems so boring. The only reason why you'd want to go there is to escape the alternative. You know, it's like, it's like if it wasn't the hell was so bad, I wouldn't even want to go to this place where, you know, there, the angels are strumming away and we're just all relaxing and hanging out. One of the reasons why it seems boring is because it comes from, it comes from the original teaching of Christianity that, that, that heaven right now is, is what, is what Jesus called paradise. It's a place of rest. It's, a, it's, 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 it's like a quiet, um, garden where, 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 yeah, you hang out and, and you rest from your weary journey of life. But it's not, it's not permanent. It's temporary. Because we're not going to be like resting for all of eternity because that would get really boring in a quiet garden, right? I mean, at some point you're going to want some, some, some live music. I mean, you're going to want like a video game or two. You're going to want to do something, you know, because, because rest, rest is good, but it's, it's, for, it's for a period of, of time and and scripture says that all of creation is groaning and waiting for it with eager expectation for the revelation of the sons of God all of creation is looking forward to the end of time not this interim not this period where we, where we hang out and rest they're looking forward to something much greater much bigger than we have right now but oftentimes in teaching, even when it comes to eschatology, people talk about how God's just going to trash this whole world. He's going to, it's basically going to blow up and then he's going to recreate a new heaven and a new earth. And uh, I was talking to Madden this week. Madden was reading a, a book with a bunch of nature and she, she, out of the blue, just asked me, is God going to destroy everything? Because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that God would create so much beauty and then just throw it in the trash heap of eternity. In fact, it doesn't make any sense that all of creation would be groaning with eager expectation to get blown up. Like, can't wait to get set on fire. This is going to be awesome. You know, that doesn't make sense. Why is creation groaning and waiting for? What are they waiting for? The birds, the trees, the water, the mountains, the oceans, the, the fields, the valleys, everything is waiting for eager, with eager expectation for this coming event that we call the resurrection. It's where, as scripture says, the earth will be baptized with fire. And by fire, we mean this, this blazing, white, hot, intense heat that burns up everything that doesn't need to be there and only leaves that which is good. It's baptism. It's symbolic. Just like, just like when Jesus was raised from the dead, there was the, 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 the blood from his scars were wiped away, but his scars remain. The same, the, same, the, the same you will be resurrected, but you'll be more you and a greater you and a better you than you have ever been. So it's not that he just does away with creation, not that he just does away with this. He renews it and re, re, remakes it. He takes what is there and he makes it new. Just, 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 just real quickly, the way that the way that N.T. Wright describes this is, is he says, you know, imagine, imagine like a painting. Imagine like a rich donor donates this amazing painting. It's gorgeous. Maybe it's a, uh, maybe it's a Picasso. I don't know. Picasso is pretty good. Uh, but it's this big, huge, gorgeous. I'm not really an art guy. Uh, big, huge, gorgeous painting 
that's worth like more than, than anybody can actually buy, actually purchase. It would have to go in a museum somewhere, but instead he donates it. And uh, in our scenario, let's say he donates it to Mr. Cinemark. Um, I don't know if there is a Mr. Cinemark, but let's just say he donates it to Mr. Cinemark. And Mr. Cinemark says, man, let's, let's put that in South Park Meadows. That's where that painting belongs. First of all, it's kind of laughable. But anyway, uh, he, he delivers it to South Park Meadows and and it's, you know, 20 foot by 20 foot. It's gorgeous. It's worth more than the imaginations of, of avarice. It's just, it's just amazing. Like, and the big question is, where do we put this? It's so beautiful. It's so breathtaking. It's so valuable. Where do we put it? By the popcorn or the soda? That's the question. Do we hang it behind them? No, you don't hang it by the popcorn. Because it's too valuable for that. I mean, Greece might get it. It doesn't belong there. It doesn't belong with the soda. Well, maybe we'll stick it in a theater, like off to the side or something. But it makes the entire theater look cheap. It makes the soda look cheap and the popcorn look cheap. It makes everything look cheap. And so they decide, okay, this is so valuable that we're going to have to tear down the whole theater and build a centerpiece for it. Like build the theater around this picture. When you come, when you come driving down South Park Meadows, you see this picture, you see the lights, you see that everything is, is making this picture show forth how beautiful it is. And so they tear down the theater and then they re begin rebuilding it around the picture. And as they rebuild it, they remembered some of the things that they didn't like, like the armrest break. And um, you know, there's some lame armrests in the theater and, and there's some weird noises that come on occasionally here and there and, and uh, you know, uh, churches have to bring stages in so they actually put stages in come on somebody this is this is my dream you get your own fantasy and they build they build it up in such a way that all the good benefits all the good aspects of the theater remain and are enhanced and all the negative ones are done away with and taken away with this is what the resurrection is the resurrection of Jesus is so amazing that when you set it next to your unresurrected life it's like putting Picasso next to popcorn. <laughs> and you have to go, that just doesn't fit. We need to tear this down. This is why the early church, this is why they, they, they departed from Judaism. This is why they broke away from Judaism because the resurrection was so beautiful. When you put it next to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, it was like, yeah, we're going to kill some, some, some cows. We're going to kill some this so that God will be happy. And then the resurrection of Jesus. Hold, 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 hold up just a second. This is too good to fit with these rules and regulations. This is too great to still be celebrating feasts and, and making sure that we don't eat the wrong thing. If Jesus has been raised from the dead, then we are not in the image of Adam anymore. We are in the image of Christ. We don't need rules and regulations, feast days and, 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 and all parties and stuff like that. We don't need that. that all that was pointing to this, to this thing. We got to tear that down and we have to build a brand new sort of religion that was never meant to be a religion. A brand new system of life that exemplifies the beauty of this one picture in our lives. And this is what happens when you receive Jesus. You're like, yeah, yeah, I want that hope. And then you bring that hope in and suddenly that hope makes the rest of your, of your, of your sin look really lame. And your lack of faith and your lack of trust suddenly seems really strange and odd and lame in light of what God is able to do in the resurrection. It's like, oh, totally new life, totally new everything. And so there begins a deconstruction process.
and you start tearing down the cinemark of your life and you start tearing down the relationships that are in you. See, here's the deal. When, 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 when we just look forward to a day when God's just going to zap us all up out of here, number one, we don't treat here very well. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be an environmentalist. I'm just telling you, when we, tr when we think God's going to trash this, we tend to trash this. When, 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 we th when we think this body doesn't matter, we tend to trash this. This is why. But, but, but when we understand that God's not, he's not going to zap us up out of here. He's going to come down to here. <laughs> and he's going to take what is here and he's going to make it new. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, at the end of the chapter, he says, Therefore, our labor is not in vain because we are working on something that is going to last. I'm going to get into that next week. But, but, what, but, but, what, but, but what I'm saying is that when we believe that, it, it skews our idea of what God does in us. We think that in order for us to become a new creation, God has to like, whoosh, like suck out all the bad and, and just boom, zap, get us out, escape, 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 and then boom, create something brand new. No, that's not what he does. He takes who you are and he says, now let's start deconstructing this thing. <laughs> that can go, that can go, that can go, that can go. He can, she can, I'm not pointing fingers. Uh, certain people can go, certain relationships can go, certain ideologies, you know, it's popcorn next to Picasso. It doesn't make sense. You got to pull it out of there. Just, just get rid of it. It's a process. It takes time. And then there's a rebuilding. Okay, so how, how, how well does this represent the, the, the resurrection in your life? How well does this showcase the resurrection? How well does that habit showcase the, the power of Jesus? Is this showing the power of Jesus? Is this lifting up the power of Jesus that's in you? And he rebuilds your cinemark, your life around the beauty and wonder of Jesus. And so some of you, you know, you get saved, you raise your hand, you pray a prayer, you accept the love of God, and then you wake up the next morning, you still have the same friends, still have the same desires, still have the same habits, you still have the same thought processes. That's why. It should feel weird. It should feel awkward. Until you decide to start breaking some of that stuff down to make room for the wonder and beauty of Jesus Christ. Hmm. It starts with putting our faith in Christ's resurrection and what that means for us, that it means that he can raise us up. He can raise our dead Lazarus up out of the grave. He can raise our dead selves and our dead dreams and our dead, our dead hopes. He can raise them. And so let's just bow our heads for just a moment and close our eyes. And, and, and whatever situation you might be in today, you might be in the suffering part of life and you might be just full of sorrow. And God's ready to weep alongside you. You might know somebody who's full of sorrow and you need to go weep beside them. You might have some injustice in your life, some pain in your life. And I say that hypothetically because of course you do. But the answer is to find the resurrection. The answer is to find Jesus. So I would just ask you, would you want to receive Jesus into your heart today? Would you want to put your faith in Jesus and begin this deconstruction and reconstruction resurrection process? And if you'd like to begin that today, would you raise your hand with me and just say, that's me. I'm making that.